Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Our thought leader today is John Seabrook, author of four books and staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, one of my favorite magazines, by the way, whose article, The Age of Robot Farmers, caught my attention. And it's a must-read for every farmer, retailer, and shopper. John's well-written and insightful article reinforces the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance pathway that agriculture is the solution for ecosystem services and elevates the ability for ag to be a solution for the bioeconomy, for food systems of the future, to solve for climate-smart solutions that provide vital ecosystem services. As John writes, at the beginning of the 20th century, about a third of the U.S. population lived on farms. Today, it's less than 1%. John, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks, Phil. Nice to be here. You know, your article details the trials and tribulations of a strawberry farm, Wish Farms in Florida, that picks, chills, and ships some 20 million strawberries, all of which today is handpicked by 650 seasonal farm laborers. What surprised you most in your visit? Well, the hard work of picking strawberries is something that I'd never spent a lot of time thinking about. I had done a little of it myself, but, you know, to see these guys out there in the fields all day, the way they work and the speed with which they work and, you know, the dexterity involved in picking a ripe strawberry and choosing the ripe ones from the unripe ones. Uh, first of all, just the labor involved in that was surprising. And then when I began to think about the job that was involved in automating that task, you know, which, you, you know, again, you think of a picking of a strawberry, not that complicated of a task, but mm-hmm. when you actually sit down to design a machine to do it, you realize how much is going on. So before we get to the automation of it, you write that picking a strawberry properly requires speed, dexterity, as you mentioned, and stamina, and that picking strawberries is a young person's game. Tell me a bit more about that. You're out there in a crouch or uh, sort of like bent over. Uh, the women are a little closer to the ground than the men, so in some ways they have an easier time of it. Uh, but it's not a comfortable position to be in. Uh, and you're paid by the flat, eight clamshells, one-pound clear plastic clamshells filled with strawberries. And eight of those makes up a flat. And a flat will basically get you 2 to $3.00 depending on the season. So to make a you know, $15 an hour wage, you have to pick about 60 flats or so. It's a lot of picking. And you know, it's hot and there are bugs and, and strawberries have a lot of pesticides if you're in the non-organic field. So it's an unpleasant workplace. And you know, the people who do it are, are not really uh, people with a lot of choices. Uh, and one of the other fascinating things really about agriculture in the developed world is that Nobody who lives in the developed countries that export agriculture pick the the fruits and berries. You have to get right, right. it's like a basic fact of life of, of development that as soon as you get to the point where you're developed enough to export fruits or vegetables, your labor force is developed enough so that they don't want to pick the fruits and vegetables. Tell me about berry five point one. What's that all about? Okay, so these guys at Wish Farm want to come up with a machine that can basically do what a crew, so a crew of 30 pickers can do in about eight hours. Uh, so, you know, instead of having a 30-man crew, you, 
you'd rent one of these machines from the company Harvest Crew that makes them, and all you need is this machine, and and it can work 24 hours. You know, it can work at night. Actually, it's better at night than at day. It's better to pick berries at night because they're cooler, and therefore you don't have to spend as much energy in cooling them down. The one I saw had well, it didn't have 12 picking robots, but it's supposed to have 12. And by picking robot, I mean it's really just a, a wheel with six claws on it at spaced in regular intervals around the wheel. And their claws are kind of made out of these sort of soft rubber kind of material that are, um, you can, once they close over a berry, you can, they twist, mimicking the wrist action of a, a picker. Cause you can't just pull the thing off. You have to sort of twist it so that it doesn't right. bruise. And, and so th- these things are able to do that, but, but really there's basically two things that you have to solve if you're going to make a robot that picks strawberries. One is you have to be able to pick them without squashing them. But the second and kind of harder thing is that you have to be able to only pick the ripe ones. That's why people are still required to pick so many different fruits and vegetables is because they don't all ripen at the same time. Uh, because you don't want them to ripen all at the same time because you don't want them all in the market at the same time. So to have the intelligence to make the judgment about which ones are ripe or not is really, that's the ball game. And that, that to me was the most amazing part of it. They figured out how to do that? They really have. I mean, they haven't got it so that they can, you know, do it all commercially in a big field. But what they've done, and, you know, it really was kind of amazing to see it is, so it takes a human about 10 seconds to pick a strawberry bush. And so they kind of aim for that as a benchmark, 8 to 10 seconds. But when a human picks a strawberry bush, it sort of like works its way through the, the leaves and looks for the ripe berries mm-hmm. and then picks those. But when the machine does it, it hovers over the, over the bush. It has these two uh, stereoscopic cameras that are infrared that can see through the leaves. And it just hovers over that bush and it's taking pictures of all the berries on that bush. And then it's sending that information over a high speed data link up to the cloud, Microsoft Cloud, they use Microsoft, where the algorithms and all the other stuff. And and then if they've already seen that plant, they have pictures stored from the last time the, the machine passed over that plant. And they so they they know you know which berries are likely to be right based on time as well as on color. Hmm. So the machine basically in that ten seconds targets the three or four berries that are right, and then when it's decided, it only then the 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 wheel comes swooping down and in like a blur that's really right out of science fiction, like her a Batman movie or something. The robot just within a blink of an eye picks those right berries. And then it moves on to the next bush and does the thing over again. And, and I, yeah, I saw it. Well, so, you know, as, as part of this article, you also met with David Slaughter, UC Davis. Um, he leads their Smart Farm Initiative. What, what are some of the future technologies that he shared with you that you think can change the future of farming? Well, it's all about data, okay? It's all about collecting data and then, you know, figuring out how to process it. But really, at this point, I think it, what I saw at UC Davis were uh, fields that were like maps of data in which, like, each tomato plant was GPS plotted so that the cloud up there knows the unique identity 
of each individual plant and can store all the information that all the data that you collect about that plant up there associated with that GPS coordinate so that you know, you're no longer doing a kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to whatever you're doing, cultivating or watering or fertilizing. You, you know, if you have the data and then you have some kind of machine that can act on that data and go around and selectively, we, I saw a robotic weeder. Uh, so it, 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 it works with that tomato plant GPS field where it, it knows where all the GPS coordinates of the tomato plants are and then it has machine vision to see whatever else is there and, and so if the thing isn't on the spot where the gps coordinate is then it's a weed and then they kind of you know uh take it out it's like a little rhomba for a field uh, there are a number of uh, he showed me um uh, a lot of interesting stuff done with fruit trees with light capture you can use data sensors to show which parts of the tree are getting more light and which parts of the tree are getting less light, which can affect, you know, the ripening and, uh, and other quality of health of the tree and can, can inform how you go about harvesting that tree. It's basically like you, get a, you have a, a field up in the cloud, like, and it's all made out of data, but it corresponds to your field down on Earth. Once you see it, you realize that it's, it seems to me that this is like, a new wave of mechanization, like like you started the, the program talking about the 20th century wave of mechanization that you know people left the land because of. But I feel like we're kind of on on the verge of a, a new wave like that. And and the other thing that I got from the article is that you know number one uh, we've got labor shortages that will probably continue. We certainly have a, a lot of issues as it relates to the weather. So I'm wondering in your in your opinion, whether or not these new technologies, uh, to your latter point, are not only going to create a new, more efficient way of farming, but also do you think that it's going to attract a new crop of farmers, um, younger people, college educated people, you know, who've grown up on video games, who really understand this technology perhaps better than a, you know, 70 year old farmer does. Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think that certainly in vertical farming, which is uh, a sector that's the, probably the, it's still quite small, but it's grown rapidly. Uh, I went to two different vertical type farms for this piece uh, were from one guy was from Google. He worked at Google X on, on automated cars and drones and stuff before he set up this farm, essentially. And then another another guy was a venture capital guy who saw it as a, a business opportunity because there is a lot of venture capital money out there for starting you know, these vertical farms. The potential of vertical farms, though, still a little bit of a question mark because of you know, the costs of the lighting involved and whether you can grow anything more than greens and, and make a living at it is is, is still it, it's it's going to be a while there. But but definitely those people are a whole different class of people from the typical farmer. And I also think, Phil, that what you'll see is a different kind of farm worker. Probably, uh, yeah, a lot of this is being driven by labor shortages. There's a real economic component. Labor is still fairly cheap, relatively cheap. But, you know, definitely uh, uh, that's the driver here. 
and you know the immigration is part of that but it's also the mexican workers they don't want to do the work either their their kids definitely don't want to do the work but there's going to be all these machines that are going to need servicing so you know my hope and i think a lot of people's hope is that the kids of the farm workers will get an opportunity to learn enough engineering stem type skills that they'll be able to get good jobs, better jobs, high-tech jobs, working on the machines rather than picking the strawberries. Hopefully that'll happen. Well, John, thanks for writing a terrific eye-opening article. It's in the April 8th edition of The New Yorker. Google it, buy it. I urge everyone in the food world and everyone who eats food, which I guess is all of us. It's uh, us. <laughs> it's us. And, yeah. and, for join, and thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts today. Great. Thanks, Phil. It was really fun. And now, here's the news. New UN Agriculture Agency report says disaster-resilient farming can reduce agriculture risks and yield economic gain. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization launched a new study titled Disaster Risk Reduction at Farm Level. Multiple benefits, no regrets. The study examines the scale of economic gains that can be achieved through easy-to-implement disaster-resilient farming practices including planting mangroves to protect coastal areas from flooding and shifting to rooftop water collection and irrigation systems. FAO's study shows that good practices have considerable potential to reduce damages exerted on developing world agriculture by smaller-scale, lower-intensity disasters. And while these attract a lot less attention than large-scale hazards like dry or cold spells, they represent an ongoing problem for the 2.5 billion people who rely on small-scale agriculture. What grocers need to know is that farmers cannot control the weather, but what they can do is proactively protect their farmland, but that takes money. And by developing long-term financial relationships between farmers and grocers, they can afford to follow these guidelines, which will also assure grocers of a continuous supply. And on the topic of small-scale agriculture, Atlanta creates the first food forest in Georgia. The Atlanta City Council unanimously approved the transformation of 7.1 acres of property into a public park and garden. This food forest is the first of its kind in Georgia and the largest in the U.S. The urban food forest has been in the works since 2016, when the city accepted an $85,000 grant from the U.S. Forest Service Community Forest and Open Space Program. This green space, which was previously just vacant property, will feature trees, shrubs, and vines that produce fruit, as well as walking trails, a community garden, and restored forest and stream areas. Residents will be able to pick their produce from trees in the public park free of charge. Trees Atlanta, which is conducting educational programs at the site, has contributed funds to hire part-time staff, including a food forest ranger and community workforce educator. The city will also create a trust fund for outreach efforts related to the food forest. What grocers need to know is that the more food experiences your shoppers have, the more they will understand where their foods come from and the more opportunities your stores have to expand their shopping horizons to a wider variety of produce. So sample, 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 and be sure to support projects like this one in Atlanta in your hometown. And what about agriculture and food supply on a larger scale? Let's see how that's evolving and changing. Humans in the food supply chain? How important are they? 
global supply chains are packed with people doing everything from deliveries to preparing chickens to running forklifts. People are a huge part of the journey that food takes because humans are involved at every point of the infrastructure of food. They own the farms, they harvest the crops, they haul the food, they prepare it, they sell the food, deliver the food, and deal with the waste. And while human roles in the system are changing with technology, we still need humans. In these many layers, the people in the middle are largely not seen in our media, such as those farmers that we've talked about on American Farm on History. But it's time for them to become more visible. We need to really start hearing from these people in the middle of the supply chain, from farm to fork. We must be curious about how they feel about the work they do, the impact they make, and how they see their jobs and roles evolving in the face of technology, especially now that technology is enabling farmers to do better and more of it. What grocers need to know is it's time to invite not only the farmers, but the packers, distributors, and even truckers to your stores to talk with your customers. Shoppers love hearing about the journey of food and have the ability to ask questions. Today, we chat with Jeff Ruth. Jeff is a seventh-generation farmer located in the heart of Nebraska, between Polk County's Shelby and Butler County's Rising City. Living in the same family house as his grandmother and dad, Jeff and his wife, Krista, are now raising their three children on the exact same farm. 2,800 acres of land, corn and soybean, is farmed by Jeff and his father, Bart. The Roots pride themselves as generational farmers who have evolved over the years to continue to fulfill the demand to feed the world. Jeff has held a chair on the Soybean Association for the past 10 years and is passionate about educating people about not only the demands of what a farmer is responsible for, but what technology and practices are helping to make it possible. And it's the technology that we want to talk to Jeff about today, in particular about drones. Jeff, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, I see on your Twitter feed that you just ran a half marathon, but you say it was one of the worst decisions you've ever made. Why? Well, I, you know, for, for the physical and, and health benefits, it was probably a good decision. Uh, if I had the opportunity to choose a different time of year when we're not so busy and give up one of the most beautiful days we've had this spring, uh, I probably would have done so, but happy to have done it. Okay. Well, let's let's get back to the field. Over the past uh, 10 or 12 years, you've incorporated GPS technology, variable rate seeding and fertilizer, greater chemical placement, yield mapping, minimum and no-till practices, as well as cover cropping. What's been the result of all this? Well, the results for our farm has been uh, uh, huge advances in yield, um, which uh, directly affects our bottom line. Uh, the more crop that we have to market, uh, the greater return we have um, from a uh, monetary side. Uh, we've also seen uh, greater uh, soil health, less fertilizer usage, um, or more direct placed fertilizer usage in the areas that we we can uh, really push productivity and uh, reduce fertilizers in the areas where for, uh, productivity is falling off. Um, we've also been able to reduce seed seed usage and seed costs. We've uh, also uh, limited our uh, chemical applications and our pesticide applications because of the ability to uh, direct place it right where we want it um, and uh, 
it's it's been a it's been a wonderful thing for our our farm and something that you know when I came back 12 years ago would have never envisioned uh, and it's amazing the advances that have taken place in just a short period of time. I want to move to drones. I know you use drones to monitor yields and productivity. Tell us what got you started with drone technology and what it has enabled you to do. Well, the the drone was just more out of curiosity and in the young 26-year-old <laughs> brain wanting to uh, go out and fly and experience what that was like. Um, but, it, you know, we've seen huge advances in that uh, as well. A lot of what we still use it for today is just visual scouting, uh, flying the drone after hailstorms, rainstorms, figuring out where we have some uh, pesticide problems, um, looking for areas in our fields that we can then physically go and walk to and investigate. Um, it is also a huge tool for us in, in sharing our story. Um, you know, not anybody gets to look at uh, our operation from the air. Mm. Um, and so when you can see the machines going through the field and you get a sense of the size and the scope and the productivity of everything that we're doing, I think it just adds to that story of what agriculture is about today. Absolutely. Now, I know that you check the weather forecast every night before you go to sleep. Can using a drone help to deal with weather events, especially flooding, which seems to be the norm this year? Yeah, well, we've experienced our fair share of flooding. And unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of people here in Nebraska still kind of rebuilding and trying to figure out what uh, what to do going forward. Um, you know, the drone aspect for us, uh, we use it a lot to look at flooding after that occurs on some of our farms that we use for rental or we rent farms. Um, when we can go back and actually look after those events and see what areas are flooded out, um, it really gives us an opportunity to go back to that landlord or the person that owns the land that we're renting and say, you know, here's, here's what's occurring on your piece of land. You know, it's good or bad or otherwise, maybe this is something that next year when we're negotiating those, those rental payments, um, this is something we need to keep in mind because we've had a, a loss of 10 or 15 acres in this corner of the farm that we wouldn't otherwise really know about if it wasn't for visually seeing it uh, across our yield maps and through our um, drone footage. That That's a great negotiating tool, if nothing else. It is. Yeah, it really is. Now, you're also partnering with a neighboring uh, dairy farm uh, for fertilizer. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, we are extremely fortunate. Uh, we live uh, about a mile of the crow flies from the largest dairy in the state. Um, and as you all know, uh, cows need to eat and cows uh, produce a manure product that we can uh, use and utilize on our farm. Uh, so we, we provide that dairy with a silage corn and different kind of forages throughout the year as feed for the cows. We then um, have pivot systems, uh, irrigation systems hooked into the those lagoons that, uh, throughout the year and throughout the fall and the spring and the, and the growing months, we pump out and pump into our, uh, into our fields and use essentially a free form of fertilizer. Well, Jeff, you've got it all together, uh, you and your dad. Uh, thanks for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for joining us right here on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab. Until next week.